The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's August 31st, and the time is 4.08, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Nick Weaver. And I'm Marissa Jordan. Later in the show, we'll have this day in history to see what remarkable events have taken place on this date in the past, and a look at the weather for the week. Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. This week, he reviews the movie A Most Violent Year. Ricky Dows brings you an opinion piece on the Copernic National Anthem controversy. Mm, that should be fun. One of our newest contributors, Will Mayo, he brings you Taste of the Triangle. This week he interviews the owner and executive chef of Plates Neighborhood Kitchen. I have not been there yet. They sound interesting. Let's see. And one of our newest contributors, Sam Scarborough, brings you the science sector. He interviews Dr. Schwartz about superconductors. But first, I bring you my review with Sean Milkey of Alasana and Nick Honorado of Reviving Raleigh Concert Series. The following interview was recorded Thursday, August 25th. So uh, I figured I'd start off. I'll ask you guys to introduce each other. So you introduce you, you introduce you. Uh, this is Sean Milkey. Uh, he's the CEO, president of Revival Recordings, uh, based out here at Raleigh. He's also the lead singer and uh, man, the main talent of Alisana. This is Nick Honorado. He is the director of operations at Revival. Couldn't do it without him. All right. So let me get a short description of Reviving Raleigh, just in your own words. What are you guys about? What do you do? Reviving Raleigh is something we started. Uh, my band, Alisana, started here in Raleigh, and the scene was 
was booming back then. And when I came back here to relocate my family and start the company, I noticed that it, it wasn't what it once was. And I wanted to start a series of events that could hopefully grow into something larger that would bring attention to the local talent that's in Raleigh because there's a lot of it. And I think that the art of the local show has kind of gone away. Um, so we've been putting on these Reviving Raleigh series for, what, two years now? Just about, yeah. Just about two years. Uh, we do dollar shows. We always try to theme them out. We and you know we get local bands around to, to come and perform. Cool. And uh, now, what genres does this apply to? For anyone not familiar with the concert series, it can apply to anything, really. Yeah, we do. It's it's rock based, but um, we've never really limited to any certain uh, any certain genres. Um, we generally try to put together multiple uh, artists with the same type of genre to. Have this crowd has some consistency when they play on their shows, but we've done pop punk, we've done like chillax kind of reggae type stuff. I mean, we've done just alternative rock, we've done you know a couple things along those lines. We did an acoustic night. We did an acoustic night as well. So we don't we don't really have anything that we are specifically looking for in an artist. We just really want to showcase the local talent. And if anybody's interested, when we start reaching out, we we go off of whoever we can get in to kind of promote themselves first and that wants to be part of who we are. Um, and then we'll, we will generally try to build the show based around that. Mm. And uh, you guys are familiar with uh, the Rollywood like underground scene, right? Uh, Hip hop and stuff. Uh, you guys all about that. Do you uh, want to reach out to those groups or do you already have them within your uh, organization? One of the major goals with Reviving Raleigh is linking up with all local businesses and anybody else who is like-minded. Um, you know, we fantasized about what Reviving Raleigh can be when it's larger, um, you know, and involving not just music and art, but in, uh, culinary and all different kinds of, of local, pretty much any artistry of any sort. So um, we've started to make some connections and some contacts that way, but we're, we're looking every day. Mm. And are you looking to uh, expand uh, concerts outside of just uh, Raleigh in North Carolina? I think it would be like even if you're a band, you know, you want to you start inside and grow out from there. I think once we're happy with how it is here in Raleigh, then I think we would consider expanding out, sure. So how do you guys fund the concert series and the uh, program in general? Uh, it's all self-funded Yeah, right now. Yeah, this is something that like, we've talked about, how we started as a label, um, and we wanted to get Raleigh involved. So what we've done is we've just gone out and approached bands, um, but we have no, we don't have any current sponsors or partners outside of our artist management group uh we do have somebody that uh helps promote with that side of things um but this is all that we've done just from revival side mm. now you talked about uh how you were familiar with the raleigh scene and that's why you guys picked this location um did you grow up here as well or were you uh are you both really acquainted with raleigh just as a city in general and its uh, music scene uh or is it uh just you know in the the last few years and the you know brief history back then uh, I'm a northern transplant. I'm originally from the Philadelphia area, but I moved down here in 2004 to start my band down here. So I was very, very much hands-on and right in the thick of the local scene here. And when we were lucky enough to have the band grow and build and we were able to tour the country and tour the world, I knew I always wanted to eventually come back here and take anything I'd learned and any success that I'd had and try and apply it here and keep this scene, you know, alive. Cool, cool. And uh, so currently you're just in Raleigh. Uh, how many members do you have within the organization? How many uh, people do you have just doing stuff for you? And anybody that you want to just name drop, uh, go go ahead and feel free to do so. Well, we have with our revival recording staff, we have um, eight solid, dedicated employees that we that we work with around the country. 
Um, the core group here in Raleigh is four of us that work out of the Raleigh office. Um, and it was kind of our heads together, obviously, with wanting to go in this direction uh, with promoting the local scene that the people that were on site here in Raleigh have helped build, have helped reach out to artists, have helped uh, reach out to uh, venues and to promoters to try to start this concert series. And uh, like Sean said, we've been doing it. This is our sixth event over the, just about the past two years. Um, and it's been relatively successful. And we've worked with uh, two different venues so far, and we're looking to expand on that in the near future for sure. Cool, cool. And uh, so you guys work with artists a lot. Do you have any favorite artists that you like to work with? Do you have any uh, personal favorites that you just like in Raleigh? Yeah, the one do we Who's playing with... the night? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, but, but you can call me John is probably my favorite thing right now. He's a super nice guy. He played our last event. He's playing again tonight. Um, but we have also worked with some artists who are from North Carolina who've come into Raleigh because I think a big part of reviving a scene is to remember that you know, there's talent all throughout the state and why that talent would want to come here to Raleigh. Um, one of the models that we worked with is Bear the Traveler in that regard. And then um, also, um, I'm not just saying this because he's my bandmate, but one of the up-and-coming talents here in Raleigh is uh, Shane Crump. He has a group called The Ivory. Uh, they just actually have started touring around the country as well, and he played our last event. Yep. it's We, we try to find as many, you know, there's a lot of indie music here. Um, there's a lot of people that really are... Uh, taking to trying to build something and even though the scene has kind of died down a little bit over the past decade um, the the musicians the artists that are there are they're not going away and so we're trying to continue to help them thrive and give them an opportunity as an outlet to reach a bigger fan base big part of it too for me is the scene is only as strong as the bands make it and a big part of reviving Raleigh is you know we'll host the event we'll put it on but it's still your event, it's still your show, and we want you to take responsibility for the, the success of that show in helping to contribute to everything. So, uh, just talked about artists there. Um, obviously, working with uh, musician types can lead to some interesting occurrences. Uh, do you guys have any funny stories from like uh, working with specific bands or just anything that's happened while you were setting up concerts? I mean, I, I've, I had to work with Shane, and he's a diva, so... <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, uh, just a typical band stuff, really. I mean, the, the fun part about working with up-and-coming local bands is the majority of them want to work really hard, and for lack of a better word, they're not jaded like some of us get as we've been around for a long time. So it's it's always a pleasure. You can still see the, the excitement and enthusiasm to do what they're doing. Yeah, it's also interesting because, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of these are indie bands, and they're just getting started. We've had a couple different shows where, you know, they've gone up on stage, and they go to play, and the bass just doesn't work. Or, you know, one of the mics is completely out. And since most of them don't have a lot of experience, uh, being, you know, that we have several years of experience, seeing them react and seeing their facial expressions and getting so nervous. And it, it's almost priceless as if, you know, like a mom and dad, like seeing their kids experience something and messing up for the first time. You, you know it's going to be okay and nobody's holding it against them. But, uh, but just to see their kind of reaction and then gather themselves and get it back together and continue the show is always, always a treat for everyone else. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk about uh, lineups for the last few uh, events that you've done. Who are some of the big artists that you've had with uh, with your events, uh, you know, headlining or, you know, just in general that have gone on to do good things afterwards? I think that's the beauty of our event, though. It's not about headliners and it's not about having bigger artists come in. It's really about having the unknown artists come in. Um, my favorite events are the ones where I haven't heard of the bands prior to us finding them for the, for the event because that means I'm going to get to discover new music. 
that means new bands are forming every single day. Uh, what we try not to do, I mean, we've had repeat bands come back and things, but we're really trying to make this where every time we host an event, it's it's all new bands, a whole new crop. Um, because the whole purpose of this is to keep exposing more, more and more bands to more and more people. But there's really been a lot that have been a pleasure to work with, for sure. And it's interesting to see some bands will show up and just bring a large crowd. Um, and you just don't expect it. You've shared the music or you might, you know, you've spoken with them. They might be underspoken or soft-spoken and uh, they just show up and they, you know, they have 40, 50 people that come to their event. And it's just fantastic to see because now you're exposing all these new people to other bands and, and those bands' fans are exposed to this music. And it's, it's really just a, you know, cl- cross-collaboration of a, a lot of fans and getting to enjoy the night. Yeah, and the biggest thing is we we try to keep it as organic as possible, you know, and that's the big reason we we make the the ticket so cheap is we don't want people to have any excuse not to come. Um, and that way we're able to step back. It's not really, you know, we don't make money doing this. Um, we spend money doing this, and that's that's kind of the point. We want to be able to step back and just let everybody else do it and make it affordable for everyone, and that way nobody has any excuses. And we just to touch back on the kind of the funny stories thing and what you were getting into there, uh, we do do dollar shows um, almost all the time. Whenever we can, we can do the dollar shows. And we generally try to, uh, you know, roll in a theme. We've done rock prom where we had people bring their old prom outfits to, to the concert. Uh, we've done t- tonight's event is a college night where if you bring, if you come dressed in your college gear, you get in for a dollar. Um, uh, we've done, we did a Titanic themed night. <laughs> my heart will rock on uh we did uh black wednesday like the day before thanksgiving uh we did a show that night uh we called it blackout wednesday um you know we always have something that we're trying to uh an idea to get people to come and have a good time to be more of an event rather than just seeing music so you enjoy yourself and everybody around you at the same time all right so uh i talked about uh asking guys about uh expanding to outside of just Raleigh and North Carolina, but in, you know, those would be more long-term goals. What do you guys have planned for the short term uh, to grow or maybe just add to the concert series? I think now it's about expanding within Raleigh and finding different locations to do things and trying to make the events more frequent. Uh, we sort of have stuck to the once every three months kind of guide so far, but we'd like to incorporate maybe a different type of event that separates those. So we have one falling in between almost two separate types of series kind of intersecting with each other. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting trying to get or speaking with bands and getting them involved. Um, we have a lot of these conversations similar to what we're talking about now where people want to understand what's going on um, just because they've either heard of us and don't know a lot about it um, or they've heard from another band that, hey, we played this, this is a great time, you should try to get involved. And we've got a lot of referrals from other bands that have played too, which is which is really cool because then it keeps the word of mouth growing. Um, but we always want to go, you know, new venues, absolutely new bands. We've we've been a lot of, um, recruiting on a lot of uh, Raleigh event sites uh, and so forth, uh, indie, indie on the move and those kind of things about the music and the talent that's here. So there's so much to choose from, and we try really hard to get, get out to people that are active um, and then are trying to grow their brand and trying to, you know, get some fans and make something out of their music career. Okay, cool, cool. Well, that's uh, that's about all the questions. Uh, let me ask you, uh, what would you uh, say to somebody who wants to get involved with uh, Reviving Raleigh? Big thing for me is it's all about positivity and what music is supposed to be. It's not a competition. It's not this band versus this band. It's all the bands together. It's the whole scene together. And in order to revive anything, it's going to take community. It's going to take 
like-minded individuals with the same goals in mind. And so anybody who wants to get involved and they want to come up to us and talk to us about it, that's, that's what we ask you to bring is that positivity and that desire to work together and collaboratively. And uh, any contact information for people that would, would like to uh, reach out to you? Yeah, we have we have a Reviving Raleigh Facebook page. We have a Twitter page. I think it's just at Reviving Raleigh. Um, and then everybody that's involved is involved with Revival Recordings, uh, which is a record label here based out of Raleigh. Um, that's RevivalRex.com. Um, and we're on all our socials at Revival Rex as well. Okay, cool. And uh, final note, when and where is the upcoming concert? And then any concerts coming after that? Our, our next event is tonight. All right. And it's going to be at... Uh, Deep South. Deep South. Yep. Yeah. Which is, I always forget the name of the street. I just know how to get there. Dawson. Dawson. South there Dawson Street. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the next one will probably be, you know, we're in the plans, but uh, we usually take it one at a time. So our goal is to get it more frequent, but right now it's probably about two, three months. We'll, get that one. we'll do it probably in the winter. Okay. Well, it's been great having you guys here. Uh, this is once again, uh, Nick and Sean uh, from Reviving Raleigh. And uh, we look forward to great things from you guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Nick. This is Science Sector with Samuel Scarborough. I can and I have my eye on the triangle. Science. This is Dr. Schwartz, and I'm going to ask him a series of questions. First question. What is a superconductor? So a superconductor is a material that when cooled below a certain temperature that we call the critical temperature, it loses all electrical resistance to current flow. So if you pass a current through it, there's no heat. So if you think about resistance, you think about a toaster, right? The reason a toaster gets hot is because of resistivity from the current going through the material inside the toaster. In a superconductor, you would get no heat because it's completely lossless. The other thing that a superconductor does below its critical temperature is it expels all magnetic field. And so when you see images of a superconducting disk with a magnet floating above it, it's because the magnetic field from that magnet is expelled, and that expulsion of magnetic field actually provides a force that, that keeps the magnet floating above the superconducting material. What could superconductors potentially be used for other than trains? So right now there's two big uses of it. Most of you have probably heard of a thing called magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. So you hear an athlete went down and he'll have an MRI tomorrow to see the extent of the damage. Uh, an MRI is a device that's built around a superconducting magnet. So when you're in an MRI, you're actually inside of the magnet itself. And that magnetic field is extremely homogeneous. So it, the magnitude or the amount of magnetic field changes by only small, like less than one part per million over a long distance. So that magnetic field is then used to excite activity in your body so that they can do an image based on it. And then the other big use, which is not common every day for people, but is common every day for science, is the thing called the Large Hadron Collider, which is a big high-energy physics device that's in both – it's so big that it's in both Switzerland and France. And it's used for extremely high-energy physics experiments. What are you using superconductors for? So our group is doing research in superconductors for a number of reasons. One thing that we're looking at is related to that Large Hadron Collider, LHC, in Europe, 
it's operating now, but in 20 years or so, they're going to want to build a bigger one or one that creates higher magnetic field. If they can go to higher magnetic field, then they don't have to make it physically as big. And so to get to that next generation of experiments, they'll need new superconducting materials. So we're looking at materials for that. We're also looking at more everyday types of uses. So we're looking at, at advancing the materials and systems for things like motors or generators and also for things like energy storage devices. So if you imagine building, a, so for example, a big solar farm or a big wind farm, you may generate electricity at a high amount for certain parts of the day and less amounts for other parts of the day. So if you had a device that you could store the energy in when production is high and then use it when production is low, you can then have electricity all day long. And a superconducting magnet, because it has no loss or has very low loss, um, can be used for that. And then another thing is even just if you imagine putting out a wind turbine out offshore, you need to have the, the turbine go through the – after the turbine spins from the wind, the power has to go through a generator or the motion goes to a generator to create the electricity. And that's another big potential market for superconductors is simply the, the generators that would go with wind turbines and, and elsewhere in the grid. So what you're saying is it could basically transform everything that we – have currently in electrical technology. Right. That's that's the big picture goal is to to create a, a low loss or lossless environment. The other advantage of superconducting magnet or superconducting technology for motors and generators is that it's simply a smaller system. And so if you think about locations where you don't have a lot of space, like a wind generator offshore, or if you want to put a motor on a ship, right? Ships are always limited in space then having it, you know, the same amount of motor power but lower space, which we call power density, is a huge advantage. If a proper superconductor is found, do you think a real hoverboard like the one from Back to the Future could be made instead of these two-wheeled monstrosities that explode in flames? <laughs> so uh, I think the problem with the magnetic hoverboard is it's like the description of the trains, right? So in the case of the trains, you have the superconducting magnet on the train, but you also have to have magnets on the ground for them to interact with. And so if you put a magnet on the hoverboard, I just don't know where the magnetic field on. There's not enough um, magnetism, say, in the ground that it would necessarily induce enough current to, to react with. It's possible, uh, but it, 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 I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't save your money for the stock purchase yet. Dr. Schwartz, I looked at your website and you use high heat superconductors in your research. So yeah, we use, we use what's called a high temperature superconductor. And so the idea is, like I said, for a superconductor to be superconducting, it has to be below this critical temperature. So you have to cool it. And so the high-temperature superconductors, which were dis first discovered in the late 1980s, actually when I was in graduate school, their, their first selling point is the fact that they can operate at a higher temperature than the conventional ones. But keep in mind, when we say high-temperature superconductor, we're still talking about liquid nitrogen or colder. So it's 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 still colder than anything everybody's dealing with on a day to day basis. So you're talking like seven seventy three degrees Kelvin. Yeah, seven. So basically, yeah, seventies or below. So we usually talk about temperatures in terms of like the temperature of liquid nitrogen seventy seven Kelvin or liquid helium, which is way down at four point two Kelvin. But in fact, we now have technology called cryocoolers, so you can actually operate a system at any temperature in between there. So. People probably think that you know, sort of the 40, 50K range, Kelvin range would be, would be good. All right. All right, that's it. Thank you, Dr. Schwartz. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
You're listening to 88.1 WKNC, and this is Taste of the Triangle. I'm your host, Will Mayo, and you're tuned in to the very first episode. Taste of the Triangle seeks to inform you of the rich food culture in Raleigh and the surrounding area. For this segment, I interviewed the owner of Plates Neighborhood Kitchen, as well as the executive chef. Plates is a casual dining spot in the heart of Glenwood South with a unique philosophy on food. Daily menu changes and global inspiration make Plates Neighborhood Kitchen a tasty slice of the Triangle's culinary pie. Let's go to the interviews. Hello, 88.1 WKNC. I'm here at Plates Neighborhood Kitchen with executive chef Chris Santucci. Santucci tells me he's never been an executive chef before. Started off going to culinary school until I got a job at Midtown Grill under Scott James. He basically took me under his wing and taught me everything he knows. And I worked my way up from making salads during the daytime to being the sous chef. After taking another sous chef position under Todd Whitney at Oval Park Grill in Durham, the chef took a break from the industry for a little while by working at a grocer until one day he had a revelation. Was not exactly happy cooking somebody else's food. I really had a desire to cook my own and I got the opportunity to come aboard here and it's been great ever since. At Plates Kitchen, there are no specials. Everything on the menu is made with the freshest possible local ingredients. Consequently, the menu changes almost every single day. Try to be very seasonal, I got that from Todd. Always try to see what's available at the farmer's market, what's available locally, try to highlight those things. Don't mess with the ingredients too much. Scott James taught me about being creative and really finding inspiration in kind of weird areas, even snack foods. You think about a good snack food and then you can kind of play off of that and make a really nice fine dining dish. The chef has a unique way of bringing people just outside their culinary comfort zone. I try to get something that's slightly uncomfortable for people, but make it a little bit more comfortable by using local ingredients or doing southern twist on it or something people are used to eating. He says his favorite type of dish to cook is seafood. You can do a lot with it. You can make it very savory, or you can even go a sweet route. Like right now, we have coconut rice with a mango salsa and a piece of fish with a nice key lime vinaigrette and a cilantro creme fraiche. What about your favorite dish to eat? Depends on the time of the day. <laughs> I love some biscuits and gravy for breakfast. Lunch, I really like uh, like a banh mi sandwich. Then late night, pizza rolls, man. I keep it real. WKNC appreciates you keeping it real. Thanks for the interview, Chef. And now, an interview with the face of Plates Kitchen. Here we are with round two. I'm here with... Steve Day, I'm the owner. Day tells me that Plates Neighborhood Kitchen is just what it sounds like. A place for people in the neighborhood to gather for delicious food and great service. Our mission is to provide great food for anyone within walking distance to come here and enjoy it enough to where they come back and become a regular customer. Plates Kitchen has established itself as a critical player in a growing neighborhood. We've steadily grown our business since we opened, and what's interesting is that not only are we growing, but the neighborhood itself is growing. They're building new condos and residences, and I think it's going to make this more of a walkable neighborhood. Though focused on local ingredients and community, Plates Neighborhood Kitchen takes influence from all over the world. Since childhood, the owner has visited 93 countries. When his wife accepted a job in London, he knew he would be able to use it as a hub for travel, but he did not expect to find such a love for the culinary arts. That was a huge influence because we were able to go live in London for three years and use that as a base for travel. And also when I was there, I went to the Cordon Bleu and that's where I got the bug. I really was going just to learn to cook better, sort of as a hobby and absolutely fell in love with it and ended up working in the field, much to my surprise. 
Day may have been surprised about his foray into the industry, but such a high-caliber culinary education could only have had one outcome. Within five minutes, I knew that these people were different. Every one of the, the chefs that taught there had been an executive chef in a, you know, in a nice restaurant. Pastry chefs had been head pastry chefs in, in famous places. So all of these people had pedigrees and skills and experience way beyond anything else. It was intense, it was hard work, but I loved it. Seems like all that hard work has paid off. Here's some final thoughts on Plate's Kitchen from owner Steve Day. What we try to do is to make really high quality food. We make everything from scratch and yet it's a nice, casual, relaxing, fun place to eat. I think that combination is very appealing. If that combination is appealing to you, you can visit Plate's Neighborhood Kitchen for dinner seven nights a week and brunch on Saturday and Sunday. This has been Taste of the Triangle. Thanks for tuning in. Keep it locked to 88.1 WKNC. Everyone's mad. Why? Is it because well-known rapist Brock Turner is being released from prison this Friday after a measly three months? Nope. Is it because a 76-year-old man and a former veteran who, you know, everyone claims to care so much about committed suicide after being denied medical treatment at a VA office? No, not that either. Wait, wait. It's got to be because of the deaf man who was shot and killed by a state trooper in Charlotte, North Carolina, right? What? It's not that either. Well, why is everyone so mad? Oh, yeah, right. It's because San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick decided to exercise his First Amendment rights and sit down during the National Anthem. Kaepernick decided that he wasn't going to stand during the National Anthem in an effort to protest minority discriminations in America. Kaepernick is quoted in saying that he was not going to stand up to show pride in the flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. Both the NFL and the 49ers issued statements saying that it was within his rights to sit during the national anthem. Only, a lot of people don't really agree with his rights. Angry fans are now burning Kaepernick's jersey and saying that he's disrespecting our country's military by not saluting the flag. What I find funny is that the same people burning his jersey as a form of protest are against someone else expressing their form of protest. Mmm, hypocrisy at its finest. The same people who love to preach land of the free and home of the brave, the same people who believe in their right to the freedom of speech, their right to express their opinion, no matter how disrespectful or hurtful it is to someone else, are literally so up in arms because Kaepernick decided to peacefully protest the oppressions in this country. I find it funny how the same people who criticize safe spaces all of a sudden feel so violated because someone decided to exercise the same rights that they exercise all the time. Now, I come from a military family. My father was in infantry, my grandfathers were in infantry, and my brother is in infantry to this day. I understand having respect for our military, and I will stand for our flag every single time, no matter what the racial turmoil in this country is. But I also understand what Copernic was trying to do, and you should too if you believe so vehemently in the Constitution. If you want to burn a jersey, go for it. Personally, I don't have $80 to waste. I mean struggling college student over here. But if that's what you want to do, go for it. It's your right. But don't criticize someone for demonstrating their right to protest when you'll fight to the death to protect yours.
But hey, that's just what I say. Do you agree? Have a different opinion? Let me know, and I'm happy to listen. Until next time, this has been Ricky Dows on Eye on the Triangle. Hello, this is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and today I will be taking a look at the film A Most Violent Year. A Most Violent Year came out in 2014 and was nominated that year for a Golden Globe. It didn't win the award, but that doesn't really stand to show how impressive of a film it really was. I had not heard of this film before I watched it, but got the recommendation in some way I can't really remember. This movie really was fantastic, but it had some flaws that I can understand kept it from winning awards. The acting in A Most Violent Year had its weak points near the beginning of the film. It's understandable though, because being cast for someone who is supposed to be in a state of almost misery for like the duration of the film, and then having to play them as a content character is honestly just a really good test of range. The actors were given a lot to work with though, because the characterization that comes from lines in the film add a lot to the character without a whole lot of acting. Of course the delivery is important, but sometimes it's all about just what they're saying. Throughout A Most Violent Year, I enjoyed how true the main character in the film stayed to himself. He held virtue above everything else, and you could see how his values were going to topple him. How carefully the cards were put into place to challenge the character, just enough for him to grow without losing it all in the end. Filming the movie was done extremely well. They used the frame to their advantage in so many cases to keep the audience from seeing exactly what was going on and keeping us on the edge of our seats without keeping us uninformed about what was going on. One scene in particular, where the main character is following his dog around his house and then eventually leading him through the house, the camera is following from afar and taking shots down hallways. It gave the scene a sense of focus because we had to be so focused to see and understand what was going on in our field of vision. They used the camera with this expertise throughout the movie. There are a few beautiful shots of New York City in this film, and in general it's just nice to watch. I felt a most violent year relied a little bit too heavily on archetypes in certain situations to guide the script, but that really wasn't too unwelcome of a tactic for this film to use in creating drama. The story is still captivating and creates a world that these characters fit into. They never tell you a lot about the background of the characters or the story, and you mainly are just a viewer and are left to figure it out. This manner of storytelling takes a lot more effort on the part of the people designing the set. There have to be clues in the beginning of the film to give the setting instead of just outright saying where they are, like saying, I own an oil business or something like that. Speaking of which, the dialogue in the movie is so well written and they were able to stay so true to character and they let it impact the story in major ways. Instead of there being one plotline that almost certainly has to happen, like how you know a superhero character is never going to die, a most violent near almost seems like it has no direction. They end up somewhere pretty close to where they started, which is the weirdest part about the movie. It's one of those movies that you know the story will continue, but we will never get to see the end of it. Maybe they will make a sequel, they certainly could, and I'd be right there to see it too. If they were to make a sequel, I think they would be able to clean up a lot of the style and fill in the gaps and characters that remain. It would fix a lot of what I feel is wrong with the movie, so I really do hope they go on to make a sequel. The film did a great job of telling a story so that I didn't feel like I was bored and seeing setup for most of the movie. Every movie needs to have ups and downs, but having a lot of downtime usually ends in a boring movie. This movie was full of suspense until the moment it ended. Sometimes it's hard to make it through a movie even though it could be interesting. Movies that aren't as suspenseful still get your interest, but if you aren't in a theater like the majority of people watching movies, there's nothing keeping you focused on the screen besides the story's captivation. 
This movie was hard to look away from for even a little because I always felt like I had missed something. A Most Violent Year was truly a captivating film and I was glued to the screen. I'm going to give A Most Violent Year a 4 out of 5 because it had everything I want from a movie but it almost felt like the movie wasn't long enough, even though it was 2 hours long. I guess if they had managed to give a little more personality and not so much obvious dialogue and plot shifts to some of the side characters, it could have been a little bit more interesting. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snow Berated. I'm Jake Winters. Enjoy the rest of your evening. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. The time is 4.45, and I'm Marissa Jordan. And I'm Nick Weaver. For the weather, today, Wednesday the 31st, we're looking at partly cloudy skies with a high of 93 and a low of 71. Thursday is going to be rainy with a high of 92 to 70. Friday, we're looking at a rainy day with thunderstorms with a high of 74 and a low of 66. Ooh, that'll be fun. Raleigh's the other rainy city, as you know. Saturday will once again be rainy with a 76 and a low of 61. And finally, we're ending this week with partly sunny skies. Sunday is forecasted to have a high of 83 and a low of 62, so we'll enjoy those last days of summer. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for fall personally. Uh, Pumpkin spice? Nah, just not sweating, like, profusely on the way to class. enough. (laughs) Well, anyway, um, so on this day in history for our history buffs... In 1864, the Battle of Jonesboro leads to the fall of Atlanta. In 1888, Jack the Ripper claims his first victim. And in 1939, Germany prepares for the invasion of Poland. Ooh, fun. But as always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. I'd like to thank our contributors, Jake Winters, Ricky Dows, Sam Scarborough, and Will Mayo. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Marissa Jordan. And I'm Nick Weaver, wishing you all a great Wednesday afternoon.